All right, fellow fact checkers, want to remind you to go check out our wonderful sponsor, Fox and Sons Coffee. Now, Steve got his start by drinking coffee with his dad on Saturday mornings, and he wanted to carry on that legacy by starting his own coffee company and having something to pass on to his sons that they can carry on. So go over to foxinsons.com and check out Fox and Sons Coffee. And if you use the promo code FCT for fact check this, you get a 10% discount on any order of $20 or more. So please head over to Fox and Sons Coffee and get your day started off with a great, great cup of some incredible coffee. They've got the dark blend and a light blend, and they've even got decaf for those of you who get a little bit jittery. Uh, No one in my audience would ever get jittery. But head over to Fox and Sons Coffee. Check them out. All right. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This podcast. All right, Fact Check This podcast and happy Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. How about that? This will be the last episode of the year. And... It's going to be probably a longer one, and hopefully you get something out of this. The idea of this is to give people something to think about, and what we're going to be focusing on is evidence-based medicine. And kind of my primary goal with this is I want to look at some of these evidence-based medicine things, the items, the studies that have been done, and then studies that have come out to show the truth of the matter on some of these things. And and what I would really like is for people to question what's going on in the medical field. Because modern medicine is not based on getting you healthy. It's not based on finding solutions and cures. Um, what's the, uh, the quote? <laughs> um, a... Uh, a- patient cured as a customer lost like that's the that's the premise of modern medicine and so we're going to dig into first we're going to dig into an article from the daily mail and then we're going to jump over to twitter and go through a whole uh, thread it goes through a lot of this stuff a lot of different information on this stuff so bear with me we are going to go through a lot today we'll start with the daily mail uh I went to the reader only view because the Daily Mail has way too much, way too much going on with all the ads and and other crap. Um, So let's start with this one. Depression is not caused by low serotonin levels. A study cast doubt over widespread use of potent drugs designed to treat chemical imbalance in the brain. Low serotonin levels do not cause depression, according to a major review. Today's landmark finding calls into question society's ever-growing reliance on antidepressants like Prozac. Millions of patients taking selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors designed to boost levels of the feel-good chemical. University College of London's research argues, however, that there is no convincing evidence that depression is caused by an imbalance of the chemical. One academic involved in the study described the finding as eye-opening and that everything I thought I knew has been flipped upside down. Lead author, Professor Joanna Moncrief, a physicist, a psychiatrist, sorry, said the popularity of the chemical imbalance theory has coincided with a huge increase in the use of antidepressants. Thousands suffer from side effects of antidepressants, including severe withdrawal effects that can occur when people try to stop them, yet prescription rates continue to rise. 
Researchers from University College of London said that the review of evidence has found no link between low serotonin levels and depression, casting doubts on antidepressants designed to boost levels of feel-good chemicals. But other experts have cast doubt on the findings. Prescriptions for antidepressants amongst teens have risen by a quarter in England in 2020 compared to 2016. The greatest growth was seen amongst 13 to 19-year-olds where prescription rates rose by about a third. Gosh, I wonder why that happened. It couldn't have anything to do with the fact that we're actually locking these kids in their houses, not letting them go out with their friends, not letting them go to school, or in, in the in the case of uh, the of England, go to go to uni or whatever they do over there. Um, so, so here we see a chart for those who are watching the video. It shows the s- significant increase. So in the 13, 14, 15-year-old range, it's a slightly less increase, but it's still a, an, an increase. But then once you hit 16, 17, 18, and especially 19, it's a really significant rate of rise from prescriptions of antidepressants in 2016 to 2020. I mean, that's kind of some scary stuff. Like They're jacking this stuff up exponentially in some cases. So then we look at this next chart, uh, how antidepressant prescriptions in young adults have risen in in England. Uh, okay, that's more or less. Oh, so this is uh, expanding the chart out, going past just the 13 to 19-year-old range. We're looking at the 20 to 30-year-old range. And these are through the roof, too. Like, this stuff is fucking scary. Like, the amount, the number of people, and this is just in England. Like, can you imagine what it's like here in the U.S. with, you know, prescription happy doctors that don't do medicine anymore, that just do whatever they're like, that are just there to peddle whatever the most recent pharmaceutical product is? This is fucking insane. And that's the whole point of this. That's the whole point of this episode is I want people to see that like modern medicine is not in the business of getting you healthy. It's in the business of selling you some bullshit that you don't need. Or billing insurance for the bullshit that you don't need. Because that's how they really get you. Is the the way this works with the insurance companies and the amount of money that they make off of this stuff. And like you feel like it's not that big a deal because it might be, you know, five bucks out of pocket for you. But it's the way the insurance companies and the insurance businesses run and modern medicine and the way it revolves around insurance. It's fucking insane. Like the amount of money that they're making is just nuts. Absolutely nuts. And there's so much government backing into all of that. Uh, if you follow the money and look at where it's actually going, holy fucking shit. And like I've said way too many times, the largest lobby in Washington is the pharmaceutical lobby. You know why that is? Because they are making money hand over fist because of the government pushing of all of these, the, the insurance. And then and then they allow the pharmaceutical companies to push all of these products. Like It should be illegal for these products to be advertised on television. Like you should not be going to your doctor telling your doctor that you want a certain product because you think you have something wrong. Like the doctors should actually be doing real evidence-based medicine and figuring out what it is that's wrong with you and then finding the correct solution for you. It shouldn't be you see something on a, on the TV and you're like, oh, I have that. I go tell my doctor that I they need to prescribe me this bullshit. And then you go and you get the bullshit and you pay $5 for it, but your insurance company pays $45 for it. And pharmaceutical companies are wrecking money in hand over fist. And the government uh, 
lackeys just keep on pushing those same policies because the more money the pharmaceutical companies are making, the more money they're kicking back to the politicians. So they'll keep on doing the same shit. Keep you sick. Keep you reliant on these companies while they just rake in money hand over fist. Kind of got to the uh, cut to the chase a little soon, but like this, that's the whole point of all of this that we're going to go through today. So if you're anxious, try eating Marmite. It's a high vitamin B6 levels that can ward off bad thoughts, a study claims. If you want to ward off the blues, coach, uh, coating your toast with Marmite might help. Uh, vitamin B6, abundant and incontroversial spread, can reduce feelings of anxiety and depression, say these researchers. Uh, the test suggests that vitamin B6 can ward off bad thoughts and interfering with your brain chemistry. Uh, mental health benefits were, however, only achieved by consuming very high doses, similar to seen in levels uh, in sub supplements. Though reading the university academics believe lower doses can be found in a love it or hate it spread could potentially work to a smaller extent. So they're presenting some alternatives. Uh, vitamin B6 can be found in tuna, chickpeas, leafy greens, oranges, bananas. You know, maybe that's why when you eat oranges, bananas, you tend to feel better. Uh, moving on. So we believe the situation has been driven partly by the false belief that depression is due to a chemical imbalance. And it's high time to inform the public that this belief is not grounded in science. One in six British adults and roughly 13% of Americans take antidepressants, figures suggest. NHS data shows there's been a surge in prescriptions doled out in England with 8.3 million patients taking them in 2021-22, 6% more than the previous year. So even from from 16 to 20, there's a massive rise. And from 20 to 21, 22, there's been an, an additional 6% increase. Like This is astronomical. The most common are SSRIs, such as uh, Fluxetine, which is Prozac, Citalopram, which is Cipramil, and Sertraline, which is Lustrol. And I think Lustrol is what they had my son on recently. Uh, he may be off of it now, but... Not a big fan of any of this shit. Serotonin helps carry signals in the brain and is thought to have a positive influence on mood, emotion, and sleep. They are preferred to other types of antidepressants because they cause fewer side effects. If they can still lead patients taking them to anxiety, diarrhea, dizziness, and blurred vision, amongst a, a whole flurry of other things. If you listen to the disclaimer at the end of any of their uh, advertisements or commercials. Depressed patients can also be hit by crippling withdrawal symptoms when they try to come off the pills. And see, that was one of the things with uh, my son's ADHD medicine was there wasn't any need for him to be taking this stuff during the summers because he's not in school when they believed that he had severe ADHD, which they've since reconsidered and they don't think it's actually ADHD, which is what I said from the very fucking beginning. But, you know, who am I? I don't know anything, right? Uh, so anyway, they're they. When uh, in the summer, we would take him off of it because there was no need for him to continue taking it because he wasn't in school. And man, those first two weeks, like the withdrawal that he would have from that stuff, from not taking that stuff, was fucking insane. And that's the same way with this stuff. Like it becomes a chemical dependence. Like I said, I mean, a, a cured patient is a lost customer. If you create this chemical dependence, it's, it's a fucking drug. Like they call it a drug for a reason, right? Because you can't do without it. It's, this stuff is legal. Legal fucking speed. Uh, that's not 
it's not far from the truth. Whenever you, you hear people say that, it's mostly accurate. At the same time, a raft of studies suggest that they don't work any better than a placebo. The UL, uh, UCL study published in the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry analyzed 17 previous reviews dating back to 2010 and consisting of dozens of individual trials. It does not prove SSRIs don't work. However, it does suggest that the drugs don't treat depression by fixing abnormally low serotonin levels. SSRIs have no other proven way of working, Professor Moncrief and colleagues said. She added, we can safely say that after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there is no convincing evidence depression is caused by serotonin and abnormalities, particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin. We do not understand what antidepressants are doing to the brain exactly. Giving people this sort of misinformation prevents them from making an informed decision about whether to take antidepressants or not. Studies used in the review involved hundreds of thousands of people from various countries. They found that there was no difference in serotonin levels between people diagnosed with depression and healthy people, despite polls suggesting up to 95% of the public believing this is the case. Artificially lowering serotonin levels in healthy volunteers also did not lead to them developing depression. Over the long term, powerful SSRIs may actually have the opposite effect as to what is intended. Imagine that. Imagine that. While it's normal to feel down from time to time, people with depression may feel persistently unhappy for weeks or months on end. Depression can affect anyone at any age and is fairly common. Appro approximately 1 in 10 people are likely to experience it at some point in their lives. Depression is a genuine health condition which people cannot just ignore or snap out of. Symptoms and effects vary but can include constantly feeling upset or hopeless or losing interest in things that you used to enjoy. It can also cause physical symptoms such as problems sleeping, tiredness, having a low appetite or sex drive, and even feeling physical pain. In extreme cases, it can lead to suicidal thoughts. Traumatic events that can trigger it and people with a family history may be more at risk. It is important to see a doctor if you think you or someone you know has depression, as it can be managed with lifestyle changes, therapy, or medication. Lifestyle changes, therapy, and medic and lifestyle changes and therapy, and especially diet changes, have been proven to be pretty fucking consistent in and positive reaction. Whereas the medication has we've been seeing through this may not only be not helping, but could be doing the opposite. Co-author Dr. Mark Horowitz uh, said, I had been taught that depression was caused by low serotonin in my psychi psychiatry training and had even taught this to students in my own lectures. Being involved in this research was eye-opening and feels like everything I thought I knew was being flipped upside down. However, other experts have criticized the study's conclusion. The Royal College of Psychiatrists urged people with depression to continue taking their medication. Of course they did. Of course they did. I'll get to that. Antidepressants will vary in effectiveness for different people, a spokesperson said. And the reason for this are comp and the reasons for this are complex, which is why it's important that patient care is based on each individual's needs and reviewed regularly. Continued research into treatments is important to help us better understand how medications work as well as their effectiveness. We would not recommend for anyone to stop taking their antidepressants based on this review and encourage anyone with concerns about their medication to contact their general practitioner. Dr. Michael Bloomfield, another psychiatrist at UCL, called the findings unsurprising 
given how complex a condition depression is. The reason they don't, uh, the Royal College of Psychiatrists is not going to suggest that you stop taking your antidepressants is because all of these doctors, for the most part, are bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies. The ones who are willing to do the research and actually look into this stuff and tell the truth about it tend to be the ones who aren't completely bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies. And they also get threatened with having their licenses taken away. You know why they get threatened with having their licenses taken away? Because they share factual, truthful information. And if you do that, then the pharmaceutical lobbies will go to bat against you with your local politicians, state and federal, and make sure that they get you disbarred. The whole thing's a fucking game and the game is rigged. Until you learn that the game is rigged and figure out how to be a better cheater, you're going to be on the losing side. Depression has lots of different symptoms, and I don't think I've met any serious scientists or psychiatrists who think that all the causes of depression are caused by a simple, simple chemical imbalance in serotonin. However, he said it was still possible for SSRIs to help treat depression, even if they didn't address the root cause. Got to keep taking the, got to keep paying for that thing that's paying our bills, please. Many of us know that taking uh, paracetamol can be helpful for headaches, and I don't think anyone believes that headaches are caused by not enough paracetamol in the brain. The same logic applies to depression and medicines used to treat depression. There is consistent evidence that antidepressants can be helpful in the treatment of depression and can be life-saving. I'd like to see his evidence of that. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to evidence-based medicine momentarily. Professor Alan Young, director of the Center for Effect, uh, Effective Disorders at the Institute of Psychiatry, said the review does not change the evidence that antidepressants work. Again, show us the evidence. Oh, but wait. An analysis of NHS data published this month found the number of antidepressants doled out to 13 to 19-year-olds rose by a quarter between 2016 and 2020. It included prescriptions up to the end of 2020, in, uh, following a year of national COVID lockdowns and school and university closings. An increasing amount of evidence is beginning to accrue, showing that restrictions took a heavy toll on young people's mental health. How many of us called that shit? The NHS data obtained through Freedom of Information request also showed antidepressant use rose sharply among adults in their 20s. Mental health and children's ch charities told Mail Online the data was an alarming sign of mental health crisis in Britain, and that's the same thing going on here in the U.S. They warned some young people may have been given drugs by general practitioners because they can't get counseling due to pandemic backlogs. The thing that we know helps the most. Change of lifestyle. Change of diet and consistent therapy or counseling. You weren't allowed to go outside. You had to eat whatever garbage bullshit could be delivered to you because you weren't allowed to go to the grocery store. And you weren't allowed to go see your therapist or counselor because that wasn't considered... Uh, well, what was it? Um, essential. Yeah. Your mental health is not essential. Keep taking your fucking antidepressants because those are absolutely essential those are essential to padding the pockets of bureaucrats and big pharma and the doctors who 
can't wait to prescribe you all of that shit. So let's move on to the evidence-based medicine stuff and get into that conversation because there is talk here at the end about, there is talk at the end here about how um, the evidence, the evidence, the evidence still shows that these antidepressants work. But does it? When you when you listen to the end of a commercial for one of these things and you hear the 90 seconds it takes them to rattle off at 2x speed all of the possible complications that you could get from this, and then you see the way it's creating such a heavy dependency on people who are taking it, you see the number of people like I should I should have pulled the statistic up. The number of people who are on antidepressants and commit suicide every year, like holy shit! The you would you would think if you are taking antidepressants that the suicide rate would go down, right? Except that it doesn't. So like, where's this where's this evidence that they're talking about? Well, that's what we're gonna get into on the next. This is a uh, it's a Twitter Twitter thread that goes through a whole bunch of stuff. And we're just going to jump right into it because otherwise I'll never get through all of it. Uh, here we go. Deconstructing evidence-based medicine from the inside out. At first I was shot. And so this is from Alexandros Marinos. And you can, I'll, I'll have a link to all of this. So you can go check it all out and check him out. It's really, really good stuff. Um, at first I was shocked with what I was finding. How could anyone not have seen this. Well, I was wrong. People have definitely seen it and have spoken out in peer-reviewed journals, but nobody in power cares. So uh, let's start with an excellent paper by Leonid Hanin. Uh, I'm just going to pull up the, the headline for this. Why statistical interference from clinical trials is likely to generate false and irreproducible results. Uh, again, everything that's in this I highly recommend checking it all out. It's going to take some time, but uh, it's totally worth it, and it, it'll help you. I guess I'm here to give you the Cliff Notes version. So if you want the, uh, if you want to point people to what's going on, I I can give you that. But man, if you want to really get a deep dive into this stuff, go check out all the links and everything that's included in this in this thread right here. It's a whole bunch of stuff. So an incredible piece that is extremely readable and uncovers the whole mess. So I'm going to read from this part because it is really good stuff. Why statistical interference from clinical trials is likely to generate false and irreproducible results. We conclude with a few specific recommendations informed by the analysis undertaken in this work. Clinical trials should be publicly funded and conducted by biomedical researchers, medical doctors, and statisticians with no relation to industry and no conflicts of interest. Healthcare decisions based on outcomes of clinical trials should rely on a combination of statistical and biomedical evidence. Scientific and healthcare benefits resulting from clinical trials should be compared to that of state-of-the-art controlled individual case studies incurring comparable costs. Trials should be populated in such a way that the anticipated individual responses in all arms of the trial are as homogeneous as possible given the available prior information. Results of statistical analysis by randomized civil trial data should be compared with those based on deterministic individualized responses and pre-mutations based p-values, unless there is strong scientific evidence that individual responses are stochastic. The use of fixed levels of significance in statistical power, as well as pursuit of small p-values in parametric 
parametric metric analysis of trial data should be discouraged. Computation of parametric p-values for randomized clinical trial data should involve averaging, averaging over the set of permutations produced by the randomization algorithm. So what all this stuff is saying in, in a nutshell is most, if not all, of these clinical trials are actually funded by the pharmaceutical company that has a medication under review. So, so like we talked about several weeks ago, the research that's being done on myocarditis following vaccination is being done by Pfizer and Moderna. And they even said prior to conducting the surveys or the studies that they don't expect to find anything out of the ordinary. <clears throat> See, they already have an expectation of what they think the end result will be. They think that the end result is going to be that there was no increase. And so the data is going to prove that out. At the end of the day, that's what it's going to be. The same thing happened with Pfizer doing a number of different trials on vaccines. They had specific results they were expecting to get from the vaccine. And so anytime there was a deviation from the expected result, they claimed that they would just claim that 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 particular part of the test was flawed or aired or something happened and they would just discard it. They would exclude it as a po and then and then at the end of the test, they get all of the the results that they expect to get and none of the bad results because all of the bad results got discarded as being uh, invalid. That's this is evidence based medicine in a nutshell. So as he says, oh, come on, Alex, this is some professor from Idaho with a 23H index. That's, is this your reputation? Uh, not even gotten started. So this is everything that the professor who did this study has been involved in. He's pretty, uh, pretty well acclaimed. I highly recommend checking him out. How about Dr. Peter Getz? Over 180,000 citations, H index of 103, which means over 100 papers with over 100 citations each. Is he credentialed enough? And he was the founder and board member of the Cochrane Collaboration. And so this is another professor who, again, you should really be watching the video for this one because there's a lot of information on the video uh, in these slides and stuff that I'm pulling up. This is all the different places that you can find like his work in this field. Uh, here he is explaining why large pharmaceutical companies meet the definition of organized crime. Do what their doctors told them. So they die because of the side effects. The other half die because of errors. And it's often the doctors that make the errors because any drug may come with 20, 30, or 40 warnings, contraindications, precautions, and so on. No doctor in the world knows about all this. So that's an important piece of this that I really wanted to, to look at is no doctor knows about all of this. So a lot of the times the things that your doctor, that your general practitioner are prescribing to you, they have no fucking clue. They're basing their prescription on what they've been told by a pharmaceutical rep and what's going to get their, the most money for their practice if they prescribe a bunch of it. And also they get showed all of these peer-reviewed articles. Well, all of this 
these peer-reviewed articles are the studies that are conducted by Pfizer and Moderna by the company that made the product to begin with. And it's it's like I said, like they what they do is is they conduct a study and they find all of this stuff from the study. And then anything that doesn't meet the expectation of their study gets thrown out as invalid for whatever reason. They always explain it away. And then they put together a big case study around the evidence that all of this creates. And then that is handed out to other physicians in the field or scientists in the field. And they go through and they look at it and say, yeah, looks good. Rubber stamp. That's the peer review process. Peer reviewed does not mean that other people go and conduct these same experiments and these same uh, tests and confirm that what they said was right. They take the information they've been given and they look at it and they say, okay, that looks good. They did a study. Here it is. Good to go. That's the peer review process. How, like, how fucking insane is that? So, anyway, back to the, uh, Back to the thread, uh, and the thread it talks about a number of different um, a number of different doctors who have been involved in a number of different research on all of this stuff. Uh, John P. A. Ioannidis. Uh, we can pull up some other stuff. So way back in nineteen ninety eight. Charlton and Miles laid it all out for us. A science that is named after the lie that all prior medicine was not evidence-based is a discipline that lives by lies. So e, uh, beyond EBM, EBM stands revealed as statistical rather than scientific. Its success is much more to do with managerial dominance than medical desirability. Any modest initial benefits have long since been outweighed by structural damage, wasted expenditure, and clinical power without clinical responsibility. EBM has advanced. Uh, EBM has advanced audit into the consultation and offers the prospect of an evidence-based health service forcibly unified under a single quality assurance system, easily regulated by politicians, bureaucrats, and their statistical technicians. Beyond EBM, there lies a whole world of good practice and real evidence, which has been largely forgotten or obfuscated by rhetoric. Alternatively, more effective models of health service organizations are available, including self-regulating professionals embedded in a facilitating administrative structure. While superior models of clinical investigation would emphasize rigorous clinical science, close observation of practice, including individual case studies, whole population studies, and representative population sampling, with mega metapopulation epidemiology again relegated to its proper subordinate role of precise measurement. The time is ripe for the evidence-based mantra to be silenced and dissenting voices to be heard. If evidence-based medicine does not fall spontaneously, it may need to be pushed. Why most published research findings are false. There is increasing concern that most current published research findings are false. 
The probability that a research claim is true may depend on study power and bias, the number of other studies on the same question, and importantly, the ratio of true to no relationships among the relationships probed in each scientific field. In this framework, a research finding is less likely to be true when the studies conducted in a field are smaller, when effect sizes are smaller, and when there is a greater number and lesser pre-selection uh, pre of tested relationships. Where there is a greater flexibility in designs, definitions, outcome, and analytical modes, when there is greater financial and other interest in prejudice, and when more teams are involved in a scientific field in chase of statistical significance. Simulations so show that for most study designs and settings, it is more likely for a research claim to be false than true. Moreover, for many current scientific fields, claimed research findings may often be simply accurate measures of a prevailing bias. In this essay, I discuss the implications of these problems for the conduct and interpretation of research. And this goes into a whole bunch of, of other information and everything too. Uh, this is all, this can all be found in the links. Uh, like I said, I, this is, it's in the show notes. I highly recommend you go look at this stuff because there's so much, there's so much information in here. In fact, this is not a medical or for that matter, scientific problem at all. It's explained that the problem of metric-driven managerial top-down authoritarianism years ago. Uh, here's another video that we've got. We're going to... All right. We're in, we're in production. Listen to this right quick. All you have to do is follow procedures. Read it. No departure. No comment. No questions. To proceed. No records were kept during the apprenticeship, but this is production. Our records will be kept. Good performers will be given merit raises. Poor performers will be put on probation. As the audience watched the stage or closed-circuit television, Mike and Leon got off to a bad start. The standard is three red beads. They had eight and 14. Now it's Karen's turn. Karen, you got a job anywhere. <laughs> Gentle agitation and no further shaking. Perfect. Excellent technique. And remember, the management stated that unless this fourth day were substantially better than the other days, they would close the place down, sweep it up. But somebody in the management came through with a fantastic suggestion. A new style of management. Magnificent. Instead of closing the place down, <clears throat> they're going to keep it on, keep it going with the three best workers. Our best workers are Mike, Karen, Bob. Mike, Karen, Bob. They're not to be our best workers. We're going to keep the place open for the best workers. Fantastic contribution, Adam. Now, beyond Melvin, Paul. We thank you for being such willing workers. You did your best. Thank you very much. Pick up your pay as you go by the window. Stay in business for the best workers. No doubt about it. That'll do it. We're going to work two shifts. Have to keep up production. Two shifts. Proceed on it first shift. Keep the place open to the best workers. Fantastic contribution to management. 
Some companies take the top percent of the class. Serves them right. So the idea around this video and, and what we're seeing here and what they're talking about for, for those who aren't watching, um, they have this experiment that they're doing where there's an expectation. They, they sift through and they find and they pull beads out. And the expectation is that you're only supposed to get like four or five beads. So everybody who's pulling more beads than that out, what they say at the end of the of the experiment is, well, all of those people are going to be dismissed. That's evidence-based medicine. That's the way that they're they're running this stuff. It's a top-down managerial-driven authoritarianism where they're removing anything that lies outside of the realm of expectation so that they create the study that gives the evidence that they are looking for, not that that not a reflection of the evidence that they actually find. Here's a, uh, a quote from Charlie Munger. Show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. Evidence-based medicine is like the war on drugs. War on drugs. You leave the incentive landscape intact. You make the lives of well-meaning folks a lot worse. And you consolidate the spoils of crime to fewer, more sophisticated cartels who are able to corrupt entire governments. And now you have two problems. Like I said, there's a lot of information in this. Uh, there's a, a link to a book or, uh, not a book. It's, a well, it is a book, but it's also, uh, there's a lot of information on, on the book itself. Uh, it's called the tyranny of metrics, the way that they manipulate and utilize metrics to paint a certain picture. Uh, I know everybody's hopefully anyway, if you're a fan of this show, you probably have seen the, the book, uh, how to lie with statistics. We've probably seen it because it was literally sitting on uh, Bill Gates' desk during one of his interviews where he was talking about vaccines and stuff. Uh, like the way that they conduct these experiments and the way that they do these studies is they tweak the data, they move stuff around, anything that falls outside the realm of expected results they consider that an aberration and they remove it in, or discard it entirely or they do like they did with some of the um the current jab uh studies where they felt like the thing that they were testing was so good that they had a moral obligation to administer it to everyone they they eliminated the control group entirely and only gave people in the test the shot. Nobody got a placebo. That's evidence-based medicine. You fix the results to match the expectation. Publish the results. Get it signed off on, say it's peer-reviewed, and then have your people go push it to doctors and practitioners and hospitals who will never look further into it than a rigged review. 
you should be questioning everything. If your doctor tries to prescribe you something, you should be questioning everything. What's in it? What are the side effects? What do you personally know about? What does the research say? What do the studies actually show? Ask fucking questions. We've become brainwashed to believe that if your doctor tells you something, it's because your doctor knows, because they're smarter than you, right? Because they've been, they went to school for seven, eight, nine years, whatever it was. And so they know these things because they're smarter than you, because they, they know these things. More often than not, they don't know anything about the stuff they're prescribing to you. They've never taken it themselves. They've never done any research on it. They've never even read any research on it. All they know is that it's peer reviewed. They cannot tell you what the peer review says. They cannot tell you what the actual study that was done says. They can't tell you who did the study. They can't tell you that it was actually Pfizer who performed the study on their own product and that they discarded anything that didn't give them the result that they wanted or that they completely eliminated the control group. You should be asking questions because this stuff can fuck you up bad. Create these dependencies that you never get over, that you never get past. This is modern medicine. I do not go to the doctor. And if I do go to the doctor, it's because I already know what's wrong and I know what I need. Like, I get a sinus infection about once a year. And so when I get a sinus infection, I go to my doctor and I tell my doctor, hey, I've got a sinus infection. I need a Z-pack. And then they give it to me and I leave. When I was diagnosed with COVID, uh, I wouldn't I would never would have gone to the doctor if I hadn't been forced to by my wife. God love her. And the only reason she forced me to go is because I forced her to go the week before. Because, because she very clearly had it. And with her job, she she did not need to be going to work. Because she was very clearly sick, but they it would be unpaid sick time if she took off. But if she had COVID, they would pay her for they would pay her for the time off. So I made her I made her go get tested because I knew she I knew that's what she had and she needed to I wanted to make sure that she got paid for her time off. So so then whenever I got it from her, uh turnabout is fair play, and she made me go get tested too. But when I got tested, they're like, Would you like some uh we could we could prescribe you the uh, Paxlovid. I was like, no, and I don't want that. Like, I actually know what I know what's in that. I know what it does. I think I don't I don't have any interest. And the, when I said that, the doctor was like, okay, fine. Like, that's cool. My my doctor just don't my doctor doesn't fight with me over stuff uh, because I take good care of myself and, and I don't go to the doctor. Like, you ever notice? You ever notice that? The people who go to the doctor all the time, who are always at the doctor's office, they're always sick. And they're always taking all these medications. And then they just stay sick. And the people who don't go to the doctor very often kind of stay away from the doctor's office. You avoid it like the plague because, I mean, that's probably what you're going to pick up if you spend much time in doctor's offices. 
they tend to be generally healthier and better off. And people who don't take a whole bunch of these medicines tend to be generally healthier and better off. People who spend a lot of time at the doctor's offices also tend to have pretty shitty uh, lifestyles. They spend a lot of time behind screens or, you know, not doing physical activity, not doing stuff outside, have, generally speaking, pretty shitty diets. Whereas people who don't spend a lot of time going to the doctors and, and avoid doctors regularly also tend to have a lot more active lifestyles and healthier diets. It's amazing, isn't it? You, you want some evidence-based science? Get the fuck out of the doctor's office. Take your happy ass outside. Change your diet. Eat healthy. Do things that are life-affirming. Quit taking all these medicines that are poisoning you. Clear your system out and be healthy. Not a medical professional. This is not professional medical advice. I'm just saying, doesn't take a rocket science scientist to look at some of this shit and figure some of it out. Like, you should really be concerned about what your doctor is pushing on you. The first question I would have would be, who told you about this medicine? How do you know about it? What's your direct experience with it? Can we look at that? That's like, start asking more questions. They are not smarter than you. They do not have access to information that you don't also have access to. I'm not saying WebMD should be your doctor of choice, but I'm saying that you should be questioning your doctor of choice. And if they can't answer your questions, it's because they don't know. And if they don't know, that means you should not be doing the things that they're trying to tell you to do because they don't know. More often than not, they probably know just a little bit more than me. And what they know doesn't make that big a difference. Start asking questions. Hope everybody has a great new year. I will be back in 2023 rocking and rolling. And I am intending to hit the ground running in January and start doing interviews again and kind of get back into uh, covering a little more current event stuff. I don't want to do a whole lot of real current event type stuff. Dag and I are going to be doing a follow-up on the meat production stuff and some of the things that go into that. Uh, going to be doing a FDA episode looking at the corruption of the FDA and like what FDA approval really means. It, uh, in case you weren't aware, it doesn't mean fucking much. I mean, a lot of these pharmaceuticals get FDA approval. It's not it's not really worth that much. Uh, so we're going to be looking at that. I'm uh, going to be doing a lot of live streams. So get ready. 2023 is going to be a fun year. Also, it's going to be the year that I get back in shape. I'm telling all of you so you hold me accountable. I need to be doing sit-ups, push-ups, and doing a little bit of weight work every single day. So bug the fuck out of me about it. If I'm not doing it, I need to be doing it. I want to be... I want to be swole. I'm going to make Liver King look like a little pussy. Oh, wait. That's right. Anyway, have a good one, everybody. Catch you next year. Don't forget to head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check out our longest and most favorite sponsor, Carlos Vanessa Abelar and Paloma Verde CBD. Get all of your CBD needs 
and you get 10% off your order of $75 or more, plus anything over $75 is free shipping. So head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com to get all your CBD needs. Have a good week, everybody.